should at least at this point have some idea what the church is supposed to be doing. Amen? We should know that the purpose of the church is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations, which in essence is this, is you and I are called by God to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with people here locally in Nassau County, throughout the world, and to the ends of the earth. And then when we see people respond in faith, come to faith and and believe in, in that gospel message, you and I have a responsibility as a church and as believers in Christ to, to teach them what it looks like to be a disciple. That is to be able to teach them to, to, so that they will know what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what God has called us to do and to do it for the glory of God. Now, you know as well as I do, whenever you set your mind and your heart towards something, we want to be effective at it, Right? We want to be good at what it is that we do. If you are in the medical field, then certainly you want to help sick people to become well. If you are in sales, you want to, well, you want to make sales. If you are a teacher, you want to be able to educate people and to teach them how to learn and to teach them particular facts in, 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 in different areas. And so if we're a believer in Christ and we're called to spread the gospel, then we want to be effective in that. And it would be much easier to really share the gospel and be an effective to share the gospel throughout the whole world if the whole world was exactly the same, right? If everybody was the same, spoke the same languages, if they had the same backgrounds, if they worshiped the same God, had the same religious background, they made the same amount of money, had the same jobs, then it would be pretty simple. You and I would just have one class and we would just write out what you have to say to this particular group of people and we would share it over and over and over and over again. The problem is, as you, as you know as well as I do, the world is not all the same. People are not all the same. They are incredibly diverse not just the way that we look, but, but where we're from and the languages that we speak and the backgrounds and, and how we think. There are people that live, uh, people are, they lean more liberal or more conservative. They're more pragmatic. Some people are more emotional. Some people are far more uh, experiential. Some are materialistic. And still other people are more mystic in their belief. And so my point being is this is, it's sometimes easier to know what to do than to know how to do it. And we may know very clearly on that we are to be sharing the gospel throughout, to people throughout the whole known world, but it's another thing for you and I actually to be effective in engaging the world around us, especially a diverse world, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If only we had somebody who could model and show us how to share the gospel with a diverse world. Oh yeah, by the way, we do. The Apostle Paul here in chapter 17. If there was ever an expert in sharing the gospel and to be able to contextualize it to different types of people with different types of backgrounds and different types of belief systems, it would be the Apostle Paul. And there are three things that I believe that made him effective at sharing the gospel to a diverse world. And they're the very three things that you and I need to be effective to do the same. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at three of these. Now, let me tell you how this worked. I got to the third point. The first two points basically cover two verses. The last point covers the rest of the chapter. This morning, as I mentioned before, 545, I cannot preach the rest of this particular sermon, that third point. I'm going to allude to it, but later on we're going to come back to and actually unpack the sermon that he preaches there at Mars Hill. But there's some things that we need to know leading up to it. What is it that we need to be effective and really engaging a diverse 
diverse community. Now, let me say this. Uh, You say, what do you mean a diverse community? Well, two decades ago, or uh, 15 years ago when I first came, it wasn't really all that diverse. You guys, some of you were here for a long period of time. You could walk down almost any street in Yulee or Nassau County, and if you were to meet somebody, basically, they would have some type of Christian connection. They would either say they were a Christian, grew up as a Christian, went to church. Now it's not the same. You have just as good a chance to meet a nun on the sidewalk. Now, by nun, I don't mean a Catholic, Roman Catholic nun. I mean a N-O-N-E, which is a person that has no religious affiliation at all today in Nassau County than you do somebody who ascribes to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So certainly diversity has come to Nassau County. So what is it that we need to be able to engage the people around us? Let me say, number one, the first thing we need is we need eyes to see. We need eyes to see. Now, let me catch you up the context here so that we understand what's going on. Paul had been preaching the gospel along with Silas and Timothy in two cities, in Thessalonica as well as a city called Berea. When he got to the city of Berea, the gospel began to take off. And there was a large group of people that became, came to believe in Jesus Christ. But we read there was also a small group of people that didn't believe. They rejected not only the message, but the messengers as well. And they became so hostile that what we found out is that, that in, in verse 14 is that some of the, 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 the brothers, which means other believers in Jesus Christ in Berea, sought to take Paul out of Berea because things were getting so dangerous for him, and they took him down to Athens. Paul was down in Athens for an unspecified period of time. Paul or Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea, no doubt discipling these new believers. But then eventually Paul wants them with him there in Athens to do the work. And that's where we pick up here in verse 16. Notice, if you will, the Bible says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Now notice, as he saw the city, that the, that the city was full of idols. That he saw that the city was full of idols. The ancient city of Athens was a visual spectacle. There were very few cities like it. If you were to enter in, the, the architecture was magnificent. There was art everywhere. There was, there was sculptures and there was, there was uh, art written. There was mosaics everywhere you went. It was beautiful. If you are an artsy person, which I am not, you would love Athens. When you got there, you would be impressed by all the sights and all of the sounds. There were, there were things there. There were magnificent buildings like, like the uh, Acropolis. There was the Acropolis, which was basically a administrative building which was bigger and more beautiful and more prestigious with with meticulous gold carvings all the way around it and 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 so even their government building was absolutely gorgeous and you could see it for miles and miles around then there of course was the parthenon which many of you are probably familiar with if you've ever seen pictures of athens there is this kind of these ruins with all these large marbles uh, marble columns and this was the parthenon and again an, an incredibly stimulating work of art that was functional as a building and as a place of worship. Well, when Paul goes there, now here's what I want you to understand. When Paul goes there, he he wasn't so much focusing on the architectural splendor. That wasn't what caught his eye. What caught his eye was the idolatry of the people. What caught his eye is that this whole city was, was full of idols. Another way of saying this in modern vernacular would be like this, is they were up to their necks in idols. They were up to their necks in idols, or another way to say it is that they were smothered with idols. John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Acts, describes what Paul would have seen this way. 
He says, in consequence, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And the Roman satirist hardly exaggerates when he says that it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. There were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In, in the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena whose gleaming spear point was visible for 40 miles away. So for many people first coming to the city of Athens, they would be amazed at what they saw. But Paul wasn't. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when I was in McClenny. Anybody know where McClenny is? All right, out in McClenny, first place that I was a youth pastor in, and it's more grown up now than it was 20 years ago, Uh, but back then we had young people in my youth group that had never been out of Northeast Florida ever. And so me, being a Yankee, decides, hey, let's, let's change this. And so for their senior trip, I decided to take them to New York City. New York City, right? And so we were going to take them to New York City, and so we got them on a train, because most of them said, we will not fly. So we got them on a train, and we took them all the way to Grand Central Station in New York. We got out, and we got into the city streets, went up those stairs, went up in the city streets, and this is what we got. Man! That's big. Those are glorious. And I'm not trying to make fun. That's exactly what the response was. They were coming to the big city, all of these glorious things. But Paul, when he comes into Athens, he's not impressed. In fact, he's overwhelmed by what he sees. And what he sees is not the art. What he sees is the paganism of the people themselves. And so what we, what we see here is that when we see a city like that, When you went to Athens, from the outside, it would seem like a city that had it all together. They were educated, they were affluent, they were wealthy, they were great skilled. It was a type of city that you'd come into and you would think to yourself, these people have it all together. But Paul had the ability to be able to look past that veneer, that thin veneer, everything that looked so shiny, everything that looked so great, and he saw to the very heart of the people, and he understood that they had great need of God. In fact, here's what's interesting to me. Have you ever noticed that if you've ever shared the gospel, it seems to be able to be easier to share the gospel with people whose lives are falling apart? Have you ever ever noticed that, right? Hey, uh, hey, um, you know, we're struggling with our marriage. Hey, great opportunity to share the gospel. Hey, our kids are rebelling. Hey, great opportunity to share the gospel. Hey, we just lost our job. What you need is you need to hear the gospel. And this is true almost anywhere that you go. And and it's natural. Why? Because you're finding a person at the midst of crisis. And what you're doing is you're saying, hey, you are in big trouble. You know that you are. You're in pain. You know that you're in need. But now let me use this opportunity to show you an even greater need. And your greater need is your sin against a holy God. And your greatest need is not even a job. Your greatest need is the person of Jesus Christ. So we get that. But you and I oftentimes will run into people that seem like Dan Walsh, our youth pastor, that have it all together, right? Sorry, Dan. They have it all together. No, sorry. But other people that have it all together, I mean, their, their, their families are beautiful. They have great jobs. They, they have they, 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 everything they do. Their children are incredibly well-behaved. They seem to be great athletes. They get all straight A's. And you're looking at this group of people, and sometimes we begin to think, that somehow they are in less in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what Paul understood is that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the very things that made everybody think that these people were okay apart from God were the very things that condemned them 
were the very things that illustrated that they were indeed in great need of God. Because the things that we look at and even as believers appreciate and think they're successful were the very idols of their life which was causing them to be condemned before a holy God. It's, it's, it would be similar to say this. When Jesus was writing to those in Laodicea, he said this. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have and I'm in need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let me give you an example of this. Do you remember the election a couple of years ago, the presidential election? Remember this? I don't know if you remember back then, but as a pastor, there was a lot of people anxious about that election. Economy was not doing well. People were scared. People were saying this could be the end. Uh, you know, I'm not taking the mark of the beast. I had somebody say, you are like, what are you talking about? This has got to be the end. If this person becomes president, then, then it's, it's going to be the end. And people were trying to figure out what can they do? How are they going to live? How are they going to go beyond this? And this is what I kept hearing from pastors all over the country. This is the judgment of God in America. We're not doing well financially, and, and, and the stock market seems to about to crash, and people are losing their jobs, all because of the judgment of God in America. We need to repent, and they were calling people to repent. Does anybody remember any of this, or did you just kind of push it out of your mind? And then their president became elected, their candidate became elected, and all of a sudden, for, the, for some of them, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the economy began to turn around, the stock market began to do well, and all these things, but now let me ask you this question. Where are the people that are calling America and the church in America to repent? Where? Nowhere. Why? Because in their mind somehow, let me ask you this question. Is America in any less need of repentance because the economy is doing better? Is, is America in any less need of God and repenting and seeking God because the economy might seem to be doing better, people be able to have jobs? No, not at all. In fact, we may be in greater need, here's why, because all those things that we think that make us good and that we're in a good position are actually the idols that we place our faith in. And the very things that we place our faith in, suggesting that we are okay, are the very things that ultimately condemn us. They're the idols that we see right here and the people we're holding and clinging to in the city of Athens. Here's what I'm, what I'm trying to say to you. What I'm trying to say to you with this whole thing, this whole idea is you and I have got to be able to have eyes that when we see people around us, whether they're educated or uneducated, whether they have money or whether they don't have money, whether their marriages are together or whether their marriages are not together, that their greatest need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they are spiritually depraved. And even if everything looks great, the problem is, is even all those things that are looking gay is making it even more difficult for them to be able to come to faith in Jesus Christ because their faith is placed in those idols we need to be able to call them out. We need to be able to draw them and show what their need is. Hey, you may have all these things, but as Jesus said to, the, to that church in Thessalonica, you appear to be rich, you think that you are rich, but in fact, you are poor and you have nothing. We need eyes to see. There's a second thing that we need. Not only do we need eyes to see, we also need a heart to feel. We also need a heart to feel. Now, when you see different kind of, when you hear a certain song, you hear certain music, or you see, you see certain things on television, um, or excuse me, in, in, in art, you see sculptures, what, what it does is emotionally it begins to stir us. Would you agree? Like, for example, when I go to an art museum, it stirs me to boredom. But, but for some people, they look at it, and it stirs, look at that, that's, that's beautiful. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know what that is. Then they're like, that's great. I'm like, I could paint that. 
My dog could paint that, right? That's what I think of. And so people are looking at this, but it's supposed to stir some emotion. Sometimes it stirs emotion of, wow, that's beautiful. Sometimes it's, wow, that's disturbing. Uh, other times it's, wow, that's, I'd like to live there. That'd be a nice place to be able to live. It stirs things. Well, when you came to the city of Athens, all of that art was meant to stir something, and it stirred Paul as well, but guess what it stirred him to? It didn't stir him to joy or to excitement or to appreciation. The Bible says that it provoked the spirit within him. It provoked him. Now, that, tra- that word translated provoke might be a little bit mild to really capture what Paul was actually experiencing. A better word might be infuriated. The word provoke means infuriated. He was angry about what he saw with all of these idols. He saw past this veiled veneer of everybody looking good and everybody having everything together. And he saw it for what it was. He saw it for idol worship. And he was grieved within his heart. He was angry. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things that anger me. A lot of things anger you? You're like, no, I'm not an angry person. Sure. A lot of things anger me. Come of things, you know, uh, gator football angers me just angers me finding out that you're not going to get a tax refund instead you have to pay that angers me someone making that dreadful smacking noise when you're eating beside them with their mouth that angers me anything to do with a1a angers me (laughs) angers me there are lots of things that anger us a lot of things that infuriate us But what's interesting to me is Paul was really reserved of what he allowed to anger him, what he allowed to infuriate him. In other words, Paul had a lot of reasons. Everywhere he went to try to share the gospel and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, people threw rocks at him, people beat him with sticks, people uh, people treated him in horrible, horrible ways. So if anybody had the right to sit back and go, I'm infuriated with the way that I've been treated, who would it be? The Apostle Paul. But here's what's interesting. He really reserves when he's going to be angry and why he's going to be angry. Do you all remember when he was writing in the book of Philippians and he's writing from prison? And and he says, while I'm in prison, there are some people who are out there who are writing horrible things about me. He said they're preaching the gospel, but what they're in essence doing is they're preaching out of envy and spite and rivalry for me. In other words... When Paul is in prison, they say, this is our opportunity to be able to get a following and turn people who are following Paul and turn them to be able to turn to me. So they were saying all kinds of horrible things about Paul. Now, Paul should get angry. You know what you and I would do? How dare them say something about me? This is my name. This is my reputation. And and you and I would be offended by what was said about us. Here's Paul's response. So to be offended for himself, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul doesn't seem to be angry because he's disrespected. He's disrespected. He becomes infuriated when his God is disrespected. He's angry when he sees these things in Athens. Here's why. Because the glory that is due only to God is now going to false gods. And that is what angers him. When he sees the love that should be reserved for God and God alone. That is what infuriates and ultimately makes him angry. Another way of saying it is he becomes angry over the same things that, that make God angry. He's provoked over the same things that provoke God himself. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, it says this. He says, I am the Lord, this is my name. My glory I give to no one, nor my praise to carved idols. This, he's experiencing what is known as righteous anger. Sometimes we as Christians kind of throw that out there, right? 
You know, we're, we're, we become everything. Well, this is, well, this is righteous anger. No, righteous anger is not you sitting on A1A and people cutting you off and you becoming angry. It's close to righteous anger, but it's not righteous anger. Righteous anger is for you and I to hate and be angry at the very things that hate the heart of God. And when he's looking around, he's seeing all these people worshiping false gods. God gets angry because of it, so he becomes angry over it. Sometimes the Old Testament refers to this type of anger as jealousy. As jealousy. And and so, for example, Exodus chapter 34 verse 14 says this, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, when we heard of jealousy, we usually think of something negative, right? I mean, we've known jealous people. You know, I mean, sometimes there's a couple and, and, and you know, somebody is jealous for no reason. But a lot of times, people are jealous for many good reasons or, or for, for, for a lot of bad reasons. Let me say that. For example, you could be jealous of somebody because of what they drive, because of the house they live in, because of the clothes that they wear, because of the family that they have. Sometimes you are jealous of people for other reasons, not material things, but for other reasons. Sometimes we're jealous for them because they have greater skill, they have greater abilities, they're physically beautiful, or they're intelligent. But when we really get down to why we're jealous, it's because they threaten to outshine us. If they're good at something, have you ever noticed this? I would hate to be, fortunately, I was never the best athlete on any of my teams. Praise God for that. And I was never the best looking person. I know that's hard for you to believe right now. Never the best looking either. But in some ways you're like, praise God I wasn't because everybody hates that guy. Everybody hates the best athlete everybody, and everybody thinks it's good but everybody else is sitting around and the reason they don't like them is because they're jealous because that person is getting the glory that they ultimately believe that they deserve and they can become angry. What do we call that? We call it sin. It's sin. It's desiring the glory that's due to somebody else for our own selves. That's what that jealousy is. But how in the world can God be jealous when there is no sin in God? How can God be jealous? Because jealousy is not always a sin. It's not always a bad, a bad thing. Think about your marriage for a minute. When you said, I do, right? How many said, I do? Right, some of them are not raising their hand. They're not really, you're wondering if you had actually said it, but... We have a recording of it. So, um, yes, you say, I do. And so when you have somebody that you married, the idea is that these two are to share in a relationship that they share with nobody else on earth. This is a covenant relationship. This is a relationship between two people that have reserved a special kind of love, a special type of intimacy, only for the two of them within that marriage bond. If somebody tries to come into that marriage and tries to take what is not rightfully theirs because they are not in the covenant relationship then you have every right to become angry. Would you not? You have every right if somebody tries to steal the love that is meant for you, for, to, for themselves. And this is, in essence, the picture of God. This is why he becomes jealous. This is the kind of angry experiences. When he sees those, God's people, that he's in a relationship with, begin to love the things of the world and to ascribe love and affection for those things over him, it makes him angry. It makes him angry. So what we have to do is, let me ask you this. So oftentimes, as I talk with Christians, everybody seems to be offended. There is this huge movement in Christianity. A lot of churches, this is basically what they preach on. That God wants you to have a lot of money. He wants you to be devoid of any kind of difficulties. And it's possible if you just have enough faith. You with me? Here's the other side. There are people after you, and there are enemies, and God is going to deal with your enemies. These are the highlighted things that they preach about all the time. But... 
when you really read the gospel and you work through the word of God, this isn't what following Jesus is about at all, is it not? And it's interesting to me that you and I would go around being offended all the time. Who are we, who are you to be offended? What what it's in essence saying is, how dare you say such things against me? Well, who do you think you are that you have the right ultimately to get offended? And why would you get offended about what somebody else is saying about you? Instead, what you ought to be offended about is how people are thinking about your God. And it doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that you get angry with the person that doesn't believe like you. That's not what I mean at all. But what it means is this. It means that you and I, when we sit back and there are people who are worshiping other gods, whether it be Hinduism, whether it be Mormonism, whether it be uh, uh, um, Islam, whatever religion it is, if they don't know the faith of Christ, that means that their praise and their worship and their honor is not going to the God who saved you by grace through faith alone. And I'm not okay with that. Paul wasn't okay with that. See, this is part of what drives us to be able to share the gospel. We share the gospel not simply because we feel bad for those who are going to live and die in a place where they never hear the gospel and they have no opportunity to be able to to, to come to faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that if they die apart from Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. There's compassion in our heart for that. But you know what really drives us? It's not just the compassion for the people. It's the anger inside of your and I's heart to the fact that the one true God in heaven is not receiving the glory and the honor and the praise and the sacrifice and the love that only he deserves. If you and I are going to impact the community around us, we have to first of all have eyes to see, to be able to see that no matter what person looks on the outside, the inside is they are depraved apart from God. Second thing that we are going to need is what? We are going to need a heart that feels, not a heart that feels for ourselves, but a heart that feels what God feels, and that is to be angered at the fact that God is not receiving all the glory and the honor and the praise. When that happens, we're driven to do something. What are we driven to do? Well, the third thing that we need is we need mouths to speak. Very quickly, we need mouths to speak. Now, notice what he, he does here. He responds to this, but his response is not one of hopelessness. It's what a lot of believers oftentimes, when things aren't going their way, what do they do? Well, things are just too bad, man. This, this, this city and this place and, and our whole country, man, they're just too far gone. Paul doesn't respond in hopelessness. Nor does he sit back and, and, and does, he, does he respond in fear. He doesn't build a bunker and begin to live off all of his Y2K supplies that are still left over. Instead, what he does, he doesn't sit there and says, well, the whole world is so wicked and evil. Let's just hide away until Jesus comes. Let's just have study after study on the book of Revelation and talk about how good it's going to come when he comes. And then the whole time there's a lost and dying world around us that you and I ought to be engaging with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we do it? When we are moved in the way that Paul was moved, we speak a message. And this is, this is precisely what he does. Notice verse 17. He says, So he reasoned in the synagogue and in the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others, uh, others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign uh, uh, divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Here's two things, two things about this message that he preached. Number one, that it was, we see here is we need to speak to a variety of people. He spoke to Jewish people, to commoners in the marketplace, and also the Stoic philosophers, the philosophers, the the academics of the day. In other words, everybody needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There is not just one group of people that we're trying to meet and to be able to reach with the gospel. It's everyone. And Paul was an expert at being able to do this, to be able to cloak the gospel and to be able to teach it in such a way, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, to cloak it in such a way that anybody could understand it. Whatever education level they had, he was able to give it to them. It's what God has called us to. But let me make a note here. This is why important that we need. Look at me just very quickly. This is why we need every one of you. Every single one of you needs to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day as Paul was doing it. Why? Because you are, you are uniquely equipped to reach particular people with particular backgrounds from particular places with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I first came to Nassau County, and some, some who are here from the time, I did not fit in well. Some of our founding members will tell you that. They're like, man, you're, like, you're sticking out like a sore thumb, buddy. You just don't whatever. So what I decided to do is I decided to learn how to hunt. So I could talk the language, right? And so now I'm about to go on a hunting trip, and it's all for the people. It's all for the sake of the gospel, right? Is, is, is why now I've taken out uh, hunting. It's all for the sake of the gospel. It's for the people. It's for my love for the people. But the idea there is, is the reason why is because there are some people that you sit down and you talk to, and you need to be able to find something that you have in common to be able to segue to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? And for some of you, and so with, with some that would come, for example, some would come, and some of you are Southerners. How many Southerners do we have, right? And some of you eat grits as Southerners, right? Okay, my family from New York, we, we eat cream of wheat. We don't drink sweet tea. We drink hot tea with milk in it, okay? You drink, you eat eggs. We have eggs with ketchup on it, okay? So here's, I know it sounds very weird, sounds disgusting, you're not from the north. And so, so what happens is you, you'll come to somebody and, and, and they just, have you ever noticed this? They're like, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from Connecticut. And all of a sudden, here's the response. Oh, okay. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> some, that's really great. That's really fantastic. Now, what's interesting is that I am from Connecticut. And then sometimes we have our military families come and they're from Connecticut. And they come down and they go, where are you from? I say, well, I'm from Connecticut. Oh, you're from Connecticut? That's, that, that's wonderful. Do you ever go to, to, to Mystic and go by? The, yeah, well, yeah. Then you see there's a connection there. And what I'm saying is, is for every single one of you, we can't become an expert in every single religion and every single background, even though we pursue to become all things to all people. But I'm telling you, you have an upbringing and a background that is perfect to begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can naturally flow into the gospel with people who speak and think much like you. Does that make sense? So we need all of you to be engaged in sharing the gospel. The second thing that I would say, and finally with this, is that we need to speak a single gospel. A single gospel. Notice what they said. They offended him. They, they, they look at him and says the, the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That's not a compliment, by the way. It means seed picker. It basically is like you, you're not really a very intelligent guy. Basically, you've just picked a little bit of belief systems from all different types of places. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinity. But notice why they think that. Because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. No matter how in you and I house the gospel, no matter how we try to engage people, the gospel is not the gospel without these truths. Number one, God is sovereign over all. He is a sovereign creator God. He made you and he made me. And because he is the creator God, guess what? He has the right to rule you and to rule me. Are you with me on that? Here's the second thing that I would say with that. Not only, not only is he sovereign, but man is sinful. That we were not only are, we are not only born in sin, but we have willfully sinned against God. We have chosen to sin against God. 
That God told us what to do, and we decided to do what was right in our own, uh, own minds. And because of that, we are deserving of the righteous wrath and judgment of God. Point number three, God is gracious and merciful. He is gracious and merciful. And even though we are deserving of death, and even though we are deserving of hell, that God in his great mercy, God in his great grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die. He was buried And he rose on the third day to be able to pay for your sin and for my sin. And number four, it is available to all who will repent of their sin and place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. So no matter where we go and no matter how we preach, no matter how diverse the community is around us, no matter how hard it might be, what language they are speaking, we seek to become all things to all people. But the bottom line is it is always an unchanging gospel that we preach. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we, just, we pray that this morning, God, even this morning, that people will be moved to the truth. God, that we will be, here's my prayer. God, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the spiritual needs of the people in our own community, people in our own family. God, even when they look perfect on the outside, it looks like everything is together. God, let us understand. Let us not be dissuaded or persuaded that they're okay. Let us understand that everything that looks so good on the outside might very well be the idols that they're placing their faith in. There might be even greater evidence that, uh, that they need the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd not only give us eyes to see, I pray that you would give us a heart to feel. I pray that we who have been... T-